Welcome to Write Now with Scrivener, where writers talk about how they work, how they develop their ideas, and how they use Scrivener, the app built for long-form writing projects. I'm your host, Kirk McElhern, author of Take Control of Scrivener. Today, I'm very happy to welcome Sean Carroll. Sean is a professor of quantum mechanics. I'm quoting from his page on Johns Hopkins University. His research focuses on foundational questions in quantum mechanics, space-time, cosmology, emergence, entropy, and complexity, occasionally touching on issues of dark matter, dark energy, symmetry, and the origin of the universe. Easy stuff. Sean, thank you for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. How do you learn all that? It takes time. (laughs) It takes a long time. You got to sort of stick through it. You pick things up. Talk to friends, read books, take courses. There's no one way, right? You need to really immerse yourself. It's like learning a language. Yeah. The more you swim around in it and deal with it, the more natural it becomes. But how long does that take? Because one question I wanted to ask is, does anyone really understand quantum mechanics? And this is an actual question that that scientists in the field wonder. Who understands this? You know, I once was uh, being filmed for a TV documentary And the director of the show said, you know, I love doing these shows, but I never understand what's going on. My brain is always hurting. And my response was, welcome to my life, because (laughs) it never ends. You never reach a point where you're like, "Okay, I understand everything now. Quantum mechanics in particular, it's not that no one person understands it, but that no one person thinks that anyone else understands (laughs) it. So I think the safe way to say it is that we don't, as a field of physics, understand quantum mechanics at a deep level yet. I don't want to give the wrong impression. We can use quantum mechanics extremely well. We can make predictions. We can verify them. We just don't agree on what's going on when those predictions are being made, what's happening underneath the hood. How long is it going to take to learn what's going on? Is this a never-ending quest? Or do you think – I know there's been talk about the everything theory, and that's kind of been debunked. But is there – can you see the light at the end of the tunnel yet? Yeah, absolutely, actually. I I think that these are things where while we're in the midst of trying to understand them, everything seems mysterious and frustrating, but we do figure things out eventually. In fact, my line on this is that we could have understood it already if we had tried. You know, physics in the 20th century made this very weird decision once quantum mechanics came on the scene in the 1920s to not think very hard about it, starting in the 1930s. In the early days, you had these epic debates between Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr with people like Werner Heisenberg and Erwin Schrodinger uh, popping in to add their two cents. But then the field as a whole decided, nope, we're just going to use it without delving too deeply into it. And therefore, we haven't tried very hard to understand quantum mechanics at the deep level. But I do think that's changing. I think that we're actually beginning to see a resurgence in efforts to really make progress here. So is this like saying that I can use a computer even though I can't explain how it works on the processor level? That sort of thing? Very much. I can drive my car, but don't tell me, (laughs) ask me to fix it or ask me to build one, right? But when you are talking about a theory of fundamental physics, we would really like to be able to do both. For other theories like general relativity or Newtonian mechanics, we understand exactly what those theories are saying in addition to being able to use them. Quantum mechanics is in in this very weird position where we can use it without knowing what it says. 
Are there any other scientific theories where that happens? Because you usually think of science as progressing on the shoulders of giants step by step, and that you've understood the past and the new bit gets added to that. So you understand that. You know, the progress of science is very far from uniform. It's herky-jerky. You learn things, you think you learn things, you have to give them up. That's par for the course. That's not surprising at all. And when you're in the very first moments of formulating a new idea, it will very often be the case that the idea seems to work better than it has any right to, right? Like, this is working really well, but I don't really know why. But usually, in fact, I, I would say with just about every other theory in physics other than quantum mechanics, we have more or less quickly understood it. We formulated the theory rigorously. We've been able to ask questions about it and everyone agrees on the answers and so forth. Quantum mechanics is this weird, rare exception that just stands out. Okay, my cat Titus would like to file a complaint. He's extremely worried about all you quantum mechanics people who like to put cats in boxes and either kill them or not kill them. Well, my friend Jim Hartle, who was a famous quantum physicist who just passed away recently, apparently had dinner with one of Erwin Schrodinger's daughters. And Schrodinger, of course, was the famous physicist who gave us this thought experiment of putting in a cat in a box and putting it into a superposition of being half alive and half dead. And Schrodinger's daughter says, I think my father just didn't like cats. <laughs> so you're not wrong in worrying about that. But I do like cats. So when I present the thought experiment, I actually change it to one where the cat is in a superposition of being awake and being asleep. The physics setup is exactly the same, but you don't have to kill the cat, even if it's just a thought experiment cat. Okay, so here's a good example of synchronicity, and I know you guys like synchronicity. There's a TV series on Apple TV called Hijack. It's got Idris Elba, and he's on a plane that's being hijacked, and he does Idris Elba stuff, right? So I was just watching this last night. In episode three, his ex-wife is a quantum physicist, and she's giving a lecture. And she and her partner had gone away for a weekend, and her son had wanted to have a party, and she said yes. When they got near the house, they didn't know whether they should go in. If they didn't go in the house, they wouldn't know if anything was broken or missing. And she said, if we don't go back, if we don't see the damage, it's as if it doesn't exist. What if there is no damage? If we don't go back, we don't get to see that either. I love Hijack, actually. Uh, Darrow O'Brien calls it Luther on a plane. If you've ever seen Luther, <laughs> it was also yeah. starring Idris Elba. I kind of wish it was The Wire on a plane, though, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, this is, I hate to say it, this is not quite a perfect use of the idea of Schrodinger's cat and superposition, because Schrodinger himself when he was giving his thought experiment where the cat is put in a superposition of alive and dead or awake and asleep, the whole point of it was the claim of quantum mechanics is not that there is a cat in the box that is either alive or dead. We just don't know which. It's that there really is both until you open the box and look at it. And that's not true for your house when you go back to it and you want to see whether it's been messed up. It is either messed up or not. You just don't know. So that's the whole point of Schrodinger's thought experiment was to take a true quantum mechanical superposition of possibilities, which happens all the time at the subatomic level, right? With individual atoms or particles or whatever. And he wanted to amplify it to a macroscopic system like a cat. And then he wanted to say, 
surely you don't believe that. <laughs> he was on the side of Einstein where they said they didn't accept the conventional consensus of what was going on in quantum mechanics. They liked quantum mechanics. Einstein and Schrodinger did a lot to help found quantum mechanics. They just thought it wasn't finished yet. They thought we didn't understand it. We need to work harder about what is actually being said. And no one listened to them. They just stopped paying attention after 1935 or so. What happened in 1935? Well, that's the year that Einstein uh, published a famous paper, the EPR paper, Einstein, Podolsky, and Rosen, where they showed that there was apparently what is called spooky action at a distance. You can entangle two particles in quantum mechanics so that you don't know what you're going to see when you measure particle one, and you don't know what you're going to see when you measure particle two. But when you measure particle one, then you know what you're going to see when you measure particle two, even if the particles are light years apart from each other. And again, Einstein is looking at this and raising his eyebrows and saying like, really guys, do you think this is really true? And it was about the same year when Schrodinger published his Schrodinger's cat thought experiment, which came about by the way, in correspondence with Einstein. And these contributions were absolutely significant, but they were sort of the last salvos in this battle about how we should try to understand quantum mechanics better. Uh, the community said, yes, very, very fascinating, interesting, and they moved away. They paid attention to other things. In your book, Something Deeply Hidden, you say the enigma at the heart of quantum reality can be summed up in a simple motto. What we see when we look at the world seems to be fundamentally different from what actually is. And that's what makes me think that quantum mechanics is also a form of philosophy. Well, philosophy is certainly very helpful in trying to understand it. I think that there's always a role for philosophy in certain kinds of scientific experiments or certain kind of scientific inquiry. Let's put it that way. When we think about deep questions, how did the universe begin? What are space and time? Why is there a difference between the past and the future? What is quantum mechanics really telling us about reality? These are questions that are 100% scientific, but they're also 100% philosophical. So I think that the smart attitude here is to take the best of both approaches and see if we can make progress. Okay, your latest book is The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Volume 1, Space, Time, and Motion. How many volumes are there going to be? There will be three if all goes well. And space, time, and motion, these are really simple words, but these are really vast concepts. Secretly, the subtitle is Classical Mechanics. <laughs> so this is the pre-quantum. That's right. Volume two will be quantum mechanics. Volume three is complexity and emergence in the bigger macroscopic world. So there's a lot of ground that is covered in classical mechanics, like, like the subtitle says, space, time, and motion. But that includes space and time from the Newtonian point of view, the traditional classical mechanics that was given to us in the 17th century by Sir Isaac Newton, but then also the updates to our images of space and time that come from relativity, both special relativity and general relativity. And the gimmick in that book is that I teach you the equations. The equations are there. You're not going to be able to ace a final exam. Okay. That's not the goal, but the goal is to actually show you the real equations that physicists actually use and talk you through them, explain what all the symbols mean, explain what concepts they refer to so that you can really understand at a literal level, not just a metaphorical level, what's going on with these ideas. It's interesting that one of your selling points for this book is that it contains equations. 
in opposition to Stephen Hawking's famous book, A Brief History of Time, which was advertised, contains no equations, easy to read. Yeah, in fact, he famously said that he was told that every equation cuts your book sales in half. So I have so many equations that if that were true, it implies that if I had no equations, I would sell more copies of books than there are particles in the observable universe. So maybe I made a mistake in putting those equations in. But on the other hand, if each equation cuts it in half, then you've got Zeno's paradox and you never actually get to zero. There's only a finite number of equations, though. So it would still be a finite number of books that I would sell, but it would be a very large number. But I'm gratified. You know, I tell people that this book made a little appearance on the New York Times bestseller list when it first arrived. And I don't say that, you know, to brag about how awesome I am, but because there is an audience for this kind of book. The best-selling books on quantum mechanics and physics are quantum physics for babies. There's a whole series of fantastic little books you can buy that are very, very simple. But my point is that there's no one audience out there. There are babies and there are people who want to see Einstein's equation for general relativity. You can't just go for the lowest common denominator and write the same book over and over again. So in addition to being a quantum physicist, you're also a popularizer, writing books for the, let's say, educated general public. And your podcast, which is called Mindscape, is already up to episode 243. So you've been doing this for a long time. I've been doing it for a while. It's roughly 50 episodes per year. So that's five years worth of work. I just passed my fifth anniversary. What sort of audience do you try to attract with the books and the podcast? And looking at the podcast, they're individuals who seem like they're going deep into a lot of topics, which are maybe not as easy for people like me, average people to access. But the books seem to be better organized to allow that entry and progression through the topic. Yeah, you know, in in all of these cases, I'm taking advantage of the fact that we have a big ecosystem, right? We don't need to simply sit back and ask, what do most people want? It's very possible that most people don't want to read my books, don't want to listen to my podcast, but there's enough people who do, right? And so I can go a little bit deeper. My podcast is not about personalities. It's not about some person's struggle against all the odds. It's about their ideas. What have they given to us that help us better understand the universe? And I like that. And if I don't like it, I'm not going to keep doing it. So I'm happy that some other people are willing to come along for the ride. Okay, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how you use Scrivener. Writing a book, screenplay, or even a long article is a juggling act. You need to find the right words and the right structure, keep track of research, and refer to notes. Tailor-made for long writing projects, Scrivener is the go-to app for writers of all types. Scrivener combines a typewriter, binder, and corkboard in a single app. A project outline makes it easy to get an overview of your work and flip between sections. Refer to research alongside your writing and just drag and drop to rearrange your work. Write in any order in sections as large or small as you like and let Scrivener stitch it all together when you're ready to share your words with the world. With Scrivener, you'll find everything you need to start writing and keep writing. Scrivener is available for Mac, Windows, iPad, and iPhone. Download the free trial from ScrivenerApp.com. Right now with Scrivener listeners can get a 20% discount with the coupon code PODCAST. That's ScrivenerApp.com. So you've been a Scrivener user for a long time. What attracts you to Scrivener? Uh, Could it be 
Is there something at the micro level in Scrivener with the particles that kind of fits with the way you think and the way you write? You know, I wrote my first ever book, popular book, uh, called From Eternity to Here without Scrivener. And it was just a nightmare. It was, you know, so many files and they were so disorganized. And then I discovered Scrivener and my life has been completely changed. By the way, I'm not making any money for saying this. This is just absolutely true uh, that I love the product. And I'm not even really a power user. You know, maybe someday I'll be writing novels and screenplays and then I'll use different features of it. But basically, there's two things that I love. One is that I have one document with all my different files in it, all my different chapters, all my different notes, right? It's so easy because I do this to move around the chapter, to realize, oh, the chapter 10 really should be chapter eight. You know, that that happens when you're writing a book. A book, when you're writing it, is too large to fit in your brain all at once, right? There's just too much stuff. So you need that ability to switch things around. And if what that means is going in by hand in the in my Macintosh and changing the names of subfolders and files and things like that, it's a nightmare. Scrivener just happens automatically. And the other thing, of course, is that my books involve research. So there's papers, there's figures, and I can just store them there in the same Scrivener document, look at them without going through and searching and stuff like that. So when you write my kinds of books that are kind of big and complicated, involve a lot of moving parts, something like Scrivener is absolutely a godsend. Because scientific writing is kind of built on citations. So you must be citing, what, hundreds of papers and books in each of your books, right? I often do. You know, different different books have different vibes. <laughs> Sometimes you write a book where you're a little bit more oracular. You're just saying, this is true, trust me, you know, trying to keep it light and friendly. Other times you're like, okay, I'm going out on a limb here. I got to document my steps. Here are the footnotes. And, and both are very valuable. I mean, one thing for me is, since I both write the books, but then also have a podcast and I give talks and I'm on social media and I teach courses, I have trouble remembering what I've already said, right? Have I told them what the uncertainty principle is? Have I mentioned vector spaces yet? It's so easy to search through all of my files and see where things first happened. Let's talk about space, time, and motion. When I was a child... I grew up with the original Star Trek, right? And you're seeing things in space and you're trying to imagine how can it be endless and, and how can it still be expanding? Is there any easy way for someone who's not in the science like you to grasp that sort of concept that's so much bigger than us? Well, I think that there's two options there. One is the traditional option, which is people will give you analogies and tell stories and give use metaphors uh, for the expanding universe. For example, we very traditionally use a balloon, take an uninflated balloon, put some dots on it, blow it up, and you see the dots moving apart. And you go, aha, that's like the expanding universe. And it is kind of like the expanding universe, but it's also not like the expanding universe in various ways. Like the balloon has an inside and outside, which the universe doesn't. The dots grow along with the balloon, which galaxies don't in the expanding universe. So the other way 
is to learn the equations, <laughs> to realize that all of that talk you've been hearing your whole life about expanding balloons was just kind of to give you a warm and fuzzy feeling. It wasn't literally what is happening. And so I think that's why for some people, certainly for my 16-year-old self, it would have been wonderful to be able to sort of leap ahead. Uh, I didn't learn about the mathematics of the expanding universe until I was in graduate school, right? And I just don't think that's necessary. I think that you don't need to commit yourself to a career as a professional physicist to learn some of these things, thus these new books. Well, we saw the popularity of Stephen Hawking's book back in the day. It was about 30 years ago. It sold millions around the world in so many languages. But then again, it was, what, 120 pages? You could read it on the beach, right? You could. You couldn't necessarily understand it on the beach, but you could read it on the beach. Uh, you know, he famously, it took him a long time to write books, right? He, you know, suffered with a neurologic disease his whole life and uh, was amazingly productive and creative during all of that. But he likes to keep it brief and that works to sell books. I feel like I, I was born at the wrong moment. Now, what I'm told is that in the mid 1980s, if you were a physicist who had a book to sell, there's a million dollar check waiting for you once Stephen Hawking's book came out because everyone thought, aha, everyone wants popular physics books. Yeah. I was a little bit, pat I was the generation where they had learned like, oh, actually, no, not all of the books <laughs> sell quite that well. But I do actually, one of my, future ambitions is to write a book that is truly short and friendly and teaches you real things without making you do all the work of, of really wrapping your brain around some uh, equations or anything like that. I think, again, all the audiences are there. There's an audience that, that really wants all the details and the equations. There's other audiences that just want to sort of get the big picture flying over things overview. It's hard, though, because you've been in this science for a couple of decades. And how do you strip that down to translate it into that, I want to say, different metaphorical language that, that will touch people in a different way? It, it would be like turning it into music. Yeah, but, you know, that's why they pay me the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, honestly, I think that the worst time to write a popular book in science is when you're a young scientist who has just learned this stuff. Some people can do it and some people are brilliant at it. But when you learn the stuff for the first time, there's a way you have of understanding it. It's all new and fresh to you and it's exciting, but it's hard to take that step back and remember what it was like to not know it at all. I've had a long time now, an unfortunately long number of years to really reflect on how people think about this stuff who haven't at the time to actually get a full physics education. So, you know, what are the questions that people have? What are the stumbling blocks? I still make mistakes. You know, I have volume two of the biggest ideas of the universe. I have the rough draft. A couple of friends of mine are reading it and they're, they're pointing to certain sections and going, I, I'm a professional at this and I have no idea what you're talking about here. So you can always get better. You always need help, but you really work on that skill of understanding what it is that people need to hear. Well, also, you've got more experience of teaching. Someone who's younger won't have taught as much, and you get the questions and the blank looks from students that help you kind of refine the way you present things, right? Yeah, I'm a huge believer that explaining science to a broad audience is a skill. It's a craft that you get better at, both by practicing it and by thoughtfully 
practicing it. In other words, not just by doing it, but by wondering, okay, how did that go? Right. You know, did I do okay? How could I do it better next time? One like perfectly obvious thing I realize is if you give a talk to a popular audience and at the end of every time you give the talk, you get the same questions. Why don't you address them in the talk? Those are clearly things that people are asking. So you got to learn that one way or another. How popular are your courses? Are there a lot of undergraduates and graduate students that want to learn about these topics? Oh, there absolutely are. You know, I've had uh, a teaching career going back to the University of Chicago and then Caltech. And now I just moved to Johns Hopkins. So my Hopkins courses are actually so far, I've only been there a year, but my two courses I taught last year were both small seminars. So there's no issue of too many people trying to sign up for them. I know that in the past, when I've offered a course in something like general relativity to physics students, people love that, you know, because they're there because they're physics students. It's not a popular audience. They're there to learn these things. And uh, I'm looking forward to teaching courses like that in the future. But if people aren't physics majors, are they attracted? Because we all see, we read science fiction, we see, you know, science fiction movies, and this kind of overlaps with that. There's a lot of considerations that go into why a person chooses to take a certain course, right? So, you know, Hopkins, for example, has a lot of undergraduates who are in science and engineering and pre-meds also. So I teach not only in the physics department, but in the philosophy department. And what I get is a lot of scientists taking my philosophy courses because they think that they will secretly be science courses. <laughs> they're not, they're really philosophy courses, but there is some science that gets mixed in there. And likewise, when I teach a physics course as an undergraduate first year seminar, we're a little bit more expansive. You know, I'm teaching a course this upcoming year on the arrow of time. This was the subject of my first popular book. So there, it's a physics course. It's mostly physics. We'll talk about atoms and entropy and things like that. But we can also, you know, watch a time travel movie to think about how that works and, you know, connect it to broader cultural issues. What's the saying? Time flies like an arrow, fruit flies like a banana? That's what Groucho Marx said. Yeah, there's a lot That's of That's who it was, yeah. <laughs> so what about science fiction? You're talking about a time travel movie. I know that my day job is writing about computer stuff. And if I read a novel and something's wrong, or I recently read a thriller and they got something wrong about the iPhone, and that just made me wince. Do you wince a lot when you see science fiction movies and time travel movies? I don't mind people bending the laws of physics. I do mind them bending the laws of logic. <laughs> I think that you should tell a good story. That's what I think is the primary goal of making a movie or writing a novel or whatever. And I also think that the best stories make sense. They're not the ones where you sit back afterward and go, no, wait a minute, that wouldn't that wouldn't have worked that way. Or even during the movie when you're going like, no, I remember very clearly someone pointing out that in the first prequel, Star Wars prequel, so The Phantom Menace, if you remember that. Uh, it was really a cutting edge movie in the in the sense of a lot of CGI was being used at a level it hadn't been used before, but they didn't really take the laws of physics seriously. So if you really jump out of a building, physics will tell you that you fall at an accelerating rate. This is a classic thing to learn in your first year physics course. But in the CGI versions in The Phantom Menace, you fell out of the window and you fall at a constant rate of speed. And the point is that most people in the audience aren't thinking in that language. They're not thinking like, why isn't it constant acceleration? Why is it constant speed? But they also know that something's not quite right, right? You know, something is not quite according with their ex experience. So what I think is that 
trying to respect the laws of physics and only breaking them intentionally and purposefully helps you tell a better story. At one point in the first half, you said, if I wrote a novel, are you thinking of writing any fiction? Oh, yeah. I think about lots of things. <laughs> yeah, I would love to do that. There are some science fiction authors who are scientists. You've got the hard science knowledge, and you know how to present it to people who don't understand it. So that gives you that that kind of advantage to have real science that people won't doubt. Well, of course, you got to come up with a good story, but you know that the scientific foundations will be good. Yeah. Like I said, I would love to do it someday. I do have uh, daydreams about it. Uh, I also have various nonfiction books I got to get out of the way first. Okay. I like to ask my guests to recommend a book, something you've read recently or something that is a really important book to you. What can you recommend to our listeners? Oh, my goodness. You just sprung that on me out of the blue. There's so many good books out there. Um, you know, I, I said earlier how it's difficult to be a very young scientist and write uh, a really compelling nonfiction book just because you haven't really been back and forth. But I will nevertheless mention two books written by very young scientists that are great. One is by Katie Mack, who's a theoretical cosmologist at the Perimeter Institute, who wrote a book on the end of the universe. I'm not going to remember the, the titles of these two things, but they're easy, easy enough to I'll look put up. links in the show notes. Yeah. So uh, Katie's book is about, we don't know how the universe will end, but we have ideas and the ideas are pretty well grounded scientifically. So she goes through all the different possibilities and it's it's both exhilarating and a little scary to realize that the, our universe will eventually come to an end. But that's billions of years away, right? We don't even know that. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10 to the 100 years away. We don't really know. Okay, thanks. You just ruined my week. That's my goal, yes. Uh, the second book is one that just came out, and I blurbed it. It's by Serafina Nance, who is actually still just a grad student, almost ready to graduate in astronomy at Berkeley. But she's written a memoir. Uh, she's had quite a life for a youngster, struggling with cancer and with you know a rough environment growing up and trying to be in the astronaut program and not quite succeeding, but now going to get her PhD in astrophysics. And it's really, to me, it it really illustrates a lot of the struggle of how to become a scientist. You know, she has her individual struggles. Everyone has different struggles. But that goal, that motivation of understanding the universe better and keep going and people are telling you you're not going to make it and there's setbacks and you do it anyway and it's all worth it was really captured quite brilliantly. Okay, links in the show notes. Sean Carroll, your latest book is The Biggest Ideas in the Universe, Volume 1, Space, Time and Motion. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks very much for having me. If you like the podcast, please follow it in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Scrivener, go to ScrivenerApp.com. Join us next month for another conversation on Right Now with Scrivener. <laughs>